Church, I love that we spend all that time in prayer in our service because what we do here is all about the one we pray to. It's all about God. The needs of our congregation, the supporting missionaries that we have supported for years financially, to be able to, to pray for them while they're here. One of the reasons we present missionaries to you is, is for their exposure, so they, you get to see what they do, but also because we believe the Lord was working and the Lord may, may move in your heart to become a missionary as well. We pray for our offering, we, we sing these songs, it's all about God. What a joy and a privilege to be able to, to get together and do that. Have you ever had a time in your life where you bit off a little more than you can chew? I have definitely had that, but I'm not gonna tell you about my time. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you a little bit about a man named Shackleton. Shackleton was a, a British man who at the beginning of the 20th century had done several uh, explorations. Uh, and in 1914, he was set to go out on what was, going to, what was considered one of the greatest explorations of all time. Prior to that, uh, Great Britain has lost the race to North, the North Pole. They lost to the United States. They lost the race to the South Pole by one month to the Norwegians. And the British were eager to show the world that they were still the greatest explorers in the world. And so Shackleton decided he was going to take a ship down to Antarctica, get on a dog sled team and cross the entire continent, be picked up by another ship and back to England. It was nearly impossible. And in fact, it would be impossible. What happened to them as they would go is uh, they, they traveled down through Antarctica uh, and got close to Antarctica, but the wind changed. Now here they are in the middle of summer. The wind changed and blew all the ice, the ice pack together, so now it was a solid piece of ice, and the boat became set in the ice. They lived in this boat from January of uh, 1915 to October. At that time, the ice began to press in on the boat and to crush the boat itself. And here is what's, what's written about this. This book is from our very own library. And I want to tell you, I do a lot of reading. This is one of my favorite books in the last two or three years that I've read. I'd highly recommend. I'm bringing it back after the service. You want to get this book out? It's a great read. Listen to what was happening to the ship. She was being crushed, not all at once, but slowly a little at a time. The pressure of 10 million tons of ice was driving in against her sides, and dying as she was, she cried in agony, her frames and planking, her immense timbers, many of them almost a foot thick, screamed as the killing pressure mounted. And when her timbers could no longer stand the strain, they broke with a report of artillery fire. Most of the forecastle beams had already gone earlier in that day and the deck was heaved upward and working slowly up and down as the pressure came and went. So what happened after this is they had to abandon the ship. They, they took off the lifeboats and packed all their supplies in that and then spent the next five months floating on ice. After that, they took the lifeboats, got into the sea with 
piles of ice much bigger than those lifeboats. And eventually, in May of, 2000, of 1916, made it back to civilization a year and a half. Shackleton bit off more than he could chew. The force of nature was far too great for him to face with the equipment he had. In fact, this adventure would be tried again, but 45 years later, when they had radios strong enough to let somebody know they were in trouble, when they had heated vehicles to go across the continent, but not for 45 years did that happen. Just a couple of years ago, the ship was found underwater, still in, in almost the condition that it went down in. Uh, because of the cold water, it was preserved. And so uh, that's, a, that's a real event. But it was very, very difficult time. And they couldn't quite handle the force that was against them. Today, we are going to look at, at a passage of scripture, the account of the ark of God being moved into the area of the Philistines, and it was more than they could handle. So let's pray before we go to the word of God. Pray with me now. Oh Lord, we come to you asking for you to open our hearts. Lord, we need you to do that. We need you to open our ears. We need you to open our eyes. As we study your word, Lord, we don't want just facts. We want you. We want deeper, more intimate relationship with you. We want to be moved by your presence, moved by your glory, and given new awe of who you are. Oh Lord, thank you for the time that we have to be in your word and study it together. In Jesus' name, amen. First Samuel chapter five. So today's message, I have the first part, we're calling this the setup. I'm setting us up with the, with the knowledge that we need to understand the passage even better. Then I have what's called the takedown. The takedown is where, where well, you know what? You're gonna read it in the passage, who gets taken down. And then the final portion will be the takeaway, what we get to take out of this passage as people living in the 21st century, looking at this passage that is 3,000 years old. What's the takeaway for us? So the background here, 1 Samuel chapter 4, we talked about it a little bit last week. The Israelites went to battle against the Philistines. They went to battle against them because they were confident of victory. They have been confident. They, they won the victory over Egypt years before when they came out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery. And for years now, they've been winning battles in the land of Canaan. They were confident going in. So here's where they were. The Philistines were were set up here in Aphek, and though it's not on the map, just a mile or two to the east is Ebenezer, and that's where the Israelites were. And they came against Aphek for this great battle, expecting to win, and they lost. And it was a horrible defeat. And so they said, something went wrong here. What do we need to do? So they decided to go back to Shiloh, about here, farther east yet, because in Shiloh there was something very special the temple, and inside that temple, which was really the tabernacle at the time, was the Ark of God. So let's talk a little bit about the Ark of God. The Ark of God was a wooden box that was covered in gold. This is one person's rendering of what it may have looked like. 
Inside the box were the stone tablets that Moses had chiseled out with the law that God had given him, the promise that God would be their God if only they would follow the law. On top of the box, we have the mercy seat. On the mercy seat are two winged cherubs with their wings spread out. And the glory of God was said to rest upon the mercy seat here. And what would happen year after year is the high priest would come into the the mercy seat and he would make sacrifice before God and on behalf of all the Israelites intercede for them, confess their sins and receive the forgiveness of God. And their relationship would be stored between God and sinful man at that mercy seat. They knew that this was representative of God's presence. They knew that this was where God would meet them. The fact that they decided to take the ark into battle is an indication of where their spiritual level had had declined to. You see, they stopped thinking of this as the place where we meet with God for forgiveness. And what they started to do was imitate the lands around them who would carry their their false gods into battle because their gods were going to give them good luck. And they treated the Ark of God like it was a good luck symbol, a good luck charm. Carrying it into battle would surely give them victory. But again, they were wrong. In fact, it was a horrible defeat. Even more thousands were, were killed And the worst part of all, the Philistines grabbed a hold of the Ark of God and carried it back to their hometown. So now let me tell you a little bit about the Philistines. The Philistines, as a people group, had migrated from northeast Mediterranean area up in here, probably the Greek islands, came down here into Egypt, and then eventually, years later, and not many years before Israel came into the land of Canaan, the Canaanites, uh, or I'm sorry, the Philistines settled here in this area. What you have here is five city-states, each with a head, uh, with, a, with a, a, a lord over these states, and loosely connected. So we have Ashdod, we have Ekron, Gath, we're gonna see Gath a little later on because Goliath is from Gath, Ashkelon, and Gaza. Now you hear Gaza all the time, the Gaza Strip. These places still exist. The Gaza Strip is the place where the Palestinians are. And just so you understand, our word Palestinians comes from Philistine. It's the same, it's the same word. It's just a modern modern, uh, version of that word. And so the Gaza Strip is currently occupied by Palestinians in the country of Israel. Now, the Philistines were a polytheistic people. They had many gods, but the god over all their gods was this man, or this god, named Dagon. Dagon was a half fish and half man. Earlier in the book of Judges, we meet Dagon because when Samuel comes against the Philistines and Samuel is captured by them, the Philistines have this great feast to 
Dagon. They sacrificed, a huge sacrifice to Dagon. And you remember the story when Samson comes in and they're, they're mocking him and he grabs hold of the pillars and pulls down the temple upon himself and upon the 3,000 people that were sacrificing to Dagon. Well, here we're going to meet Dagon again today in chapter five. Dagon is half fish, half man. Usually he's pictured uh, as the bottom half being fish, the top half being man, sort of a merman character. In here he's pictured where it looks like the front is man and the back of him is fish. He is a god of fertility. Now why fish and fertility? Because you ever see how many babies fish have? They have a lot of babies, right? And so he is the god of fertility. He's pictured as a fish. And the idea is if he blesses the Philistines, he will bless them with fertility and also their crops with, with lots of multiplication of crops. It's interesting to me because we had this whole fertility discussion earlier in the book of 1 Samuel when God came to a woman who was infertile and blessed her with a child, with Samuel. And in today's chapter, our God is going to be pitted against this God of fertility, and we're going to see who wins that battle. So we, we, um, the other thing to know about, about Dagon is that he is the father of Baal. Much later on, the Israelites are going to have a lot of trouble with Baal because they're going to worship him instead of the real God. And so that's what's, what's going on here. So let me just tell you one more thing about the worldview of the people in, in ancient times. Their view was that every area had its own God and every God had its own area. And that God was most powerful in that area. So if we as Doverites are here and we have our, our God of Dover, so if we want to go battle against Harrington or, or Harrington, right? If you live there, you're from Harrington. And if we win that battle, then the God of Dover is much stronger than the God of Harrington. Our God is victorious. And we must be doing something right because our God won over the God down there. So the gods that were created by men, that were created by these, by the Philistines and all the people groups there, they would create these gods as if they were men. We have a very different worldview. For us, God created man in his image. But every other religion, man creates God in his image. So these gods would compete for power. They had families, they committed adultery, they were tempted, they were deceived, they had limited power, and their power must be must be used only by humans who can arouse the God to act, who can appease him somehow and get him to do what, what we desire. So that is what's going on. The Philistines in chapter four, now, when they defeated Israel, what that meant for them was their God was stronger than the God of Israel. They captured the box that the Israel God lived in. They had control of the box. They had control of that God. This was tremendous. Remember who God was. God was the God who defeated all the gods of Egypt. God was the God who defeated all the gods of Canaan. And now Dagon defeated that God. What did that mean for them? It's a great future. They've got life, they've got everything going for them. Their God was the strongest and they had control.
now, finally. And, and their God was now powerful over all of that land. So now we're going to turn to 1 Samuel and read about the takedown. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. So you can picture this, Dagon, this great statue here, and they bring in the ark of the covenant and they set it here before the great statue as if it's bowing down, worshiping the great statue of Dagon. Now, I want to bring your attention to some of the wording here. It's interesting. The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to Ebenezer. They took the ark of God and brought it to Dagon, the house of Dagon. See, the Philistines thought they had control. They were the ones who was moving the ark of God around. We're going to see that wasn't the case. But they were in control of the ark. They had the box. They had the God in the box. But God will not be contained. God will not be controlled by man. So when the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of God. Well, this is embarrassing. Dagon is standing there, and now he's before the ark of God in the position of worship before the God of Israel. He's prostrate before the God of Israel. What power caused this to happen? What's the power of God? And so they took Dagon, and they set him back up in his place. Do you catch the irony of this? The great God Dagon, greater than all the gods, he can't get up. They've got to prop him up. Set him up again. Okay, stay. Stay there now. Stay there now. But when they arose the next morning, early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of God, and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Well, if they were embarrassed before, think of him now. Not only is Dagon down in a position of worship, but he's blown apart. He's broken up. He's not only humiliated like he was the day before, now he's disabled. His head is chopped off. He can't think anymore. His hands are chopped off. He can't act anymore. And he is bowing on the threshold. And to the eastern, to the eastern culture here, bowing at the threshold was the greatest act of honor. If I were to come to a room of a great dignitary, I wouldn't enter that room until I, I knelt down at that threshold and bowed in honor in the, in the greatest awe I could have for that individual. The Philistines knew what was going on. Dagon was bowed at the threshold before God. It was a symbol of complete victory as well. So you remember, I mean, we haven't gotten there yet, but, but you may know the story of David and Goliath. After David defeated Goliath, what did he do? Right, took his head because it was a trophy. 
The Philistines, as part of their folklore, part of their gods, they have, there's a goddess called Anak. She is a goddess of war, and she's pictured as a goddess who's wearing the heads of her enemies on her back and their hands on their belt. So this, the fact that, that Dagon lost his head and his hands is seen as a complete, a complete uh, victory for the God of Israel and a complete defeat for him. What are the priests supposed to do now? What are we going to do? We're going to glue him back together, stand him up again? He'll always have the scars and the mark that he was defeated, that there is another God greater. They can't escape this. And not only this, he was defeated not only in his own territory, but in his own temple, God defeated him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod this, to this day. So, think about this for a minute here. The Philistines were given so much evidence. They have God here, still there. Dagon, on his face, broken to pieces, and they look at that. Now, you would think they would say, hmm, one power compared to the other power? By Dagon, I'm over here. But they didn't do that. They didn't. In fact, for two days in a row, they had this evidence before them, and they ignored the evidence. They ignored that God is victorious over Dagon. And instead of abandoning Dagon and turning to God, they decide to create a new tradition. And that's exactly what they do. They create this tradition where from now on they won't step on the threshold because that's where Dagon was broken apart. Now I tried to research it to find out if this is where this tradition started or if they were just following the tradition of other cultures that were already existing. But still today in many Eastern countries, it is a tradition you don't step on the threshold. As I say, I don't know if it came from here or not, but they, they decided, you know what, we're just gonna start this, start this new tradition because we can't face the truth. Instead of concluding the truth about the situation, they stuck to their lie. They held on to the deception and decided to start a new tradition about it. So this event, what has happened these last two days, should have been a warning to the Philistines Okay, things aren't going right with us having the ark. Maybe we ought to bring it back. But this was too great of a victory. They had the God of their greatest enemy in their possession. They're not going to let it go. But God wasn't going to let it go either. Remember here, it says that, oh, well, let's read on. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites. And he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. Now, what happened to the hands of Dagon? Broken off, right? What does it say about the hand of the Lord? Ah, the hand of the Lord is still working, right? And not only is it working, it's heavy upon them. That word heavy should make bells go off because we've been talking about the word for glory that we've seen in the last two Sundays. The word for glory is kabod, the word for heavy, kabod. I'm sorry, kabod and kabod. The, there's a play on words here. God's glory was heavy on them. His hand of glory was upon them and it was not good. It was not good for them. 
Here, God's hands are weighing down. The glory of God is upon them. One of the ancient texts also adds a sentence in here and says that rats were involved with this plague. And uh, actually, later on in chapter 6, we'll see that they actually make some golden, golden mice or golden rats to send back to Israel. And so, so it, a lot of people believe that this is a form of the bubonic plague. Whether it was or not, we don't know, but it was horrible. It was deadly. It was painful. Some of your version, uh, your, your Bible versions will actually uh, say it's, it's a, a, a plague of hemorrhoids. So whatever it was, it was horrible. The point in all of this is Dagon had no power to stop it. He couldn't stop God. So when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God. That should have let bells go off for them. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines, the five city states, and, uh, and said, what shall we do with the ark of Israel? And they said, let the ark of the God of Israel go back to, no, not go back to Israel. Let's not let go of it. It's too good of a possession. Our victory is too great. Let's send it to Gath. And they brought the ark of God, of the God of Israel around to Gath then. So let's look at that. So they move from Ashdod, southeast to Gath. How do you think that's going to go? Well, after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city with very great confusion. And he smote the men in that city, both with young and old, so that the tumors broke out on them. So this plague is not only tumors, this plague is now a plague of confusion. The hand of the Lord is still at work while the hands of Dagon continue to be broken. Great confusion, but they still won't give it back because they decide, well, it didn't work in Gath. Let's send it up now to Ekron. So the, the ark moved from Ebenezer down to Ashdod to Gath and now up to Ekron. Well, the Ekronites aren't very happy about that. As the ark came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out saying, they have brought the ark of God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So now there's strife between these city-states. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of, God, of, of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us or our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city and the hand of God was heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. After seven months, they are going to send the ark of God back to Israel. And what a trip it will be. We're going to look at that next week in chapter 6. But for now, I think that the Philistines realized they took off more, they bit off more than they could chew. They could not handle the force of God. They thought they could. They thought it was going to be a great victory. It wound up being a horrible defeat, for, defeat with them. They were dealing with something much greater than they ever anticipated. So we had the setup. This is the takedown. And now the takeaway. What do we get from this? What do we come to understand? 
First of all, in this passage, what I want to point out to you is that this passage is not so much about the punishment of the Philistines. This passage is about the inability of Dagon to protect them against the hand of God. This passage is about, about the God of Israel being set up in contrast to idol worship and the foolishness that comes with that. The ark was going to go back to Israel, but before it did, the Philistines were brought to their knees. They were forced to recognize that God was indeed superior to all of their gods. And as much as they tried to hang on to that symbol of victory and to boast in that victory and think that they had control over it, God's heavy hand was too much for them. They couldn't handle it. They had to send it back. So here's the thing. The Philistines saw all this evidence of God's ultimate power and his superiority over everything they knew. And instead of turning to him, they got rid of him. Send him away. Get rid of him. Send him back. With painful clarity and with deadly clarity, they understood that the God of Israel was more powerful than Dagon and than anything they had ever seen before. And their response is, get rid of it. Send him back. Get rid of God, as if that would really work. Now think about it with me for a minute. What was the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant was the place where man receives forgiveness from God. You see, forgiveness is the start of a relationship with God. And, and the, the forgiveness must start with an admission, an admission that I'm a sinner. See, I'm faced with truth. The truth is, I am a sinner. I need a savior. I need some way, somebody to intercede between me and this holy God who is so powerful that I cannot manage. What am I to do in his presence? I'm to seek his forgiveness. Because once I seek his forgiveness, he's in relationship with me. You see, I must admit I'm a sinner. I am responsible for my actions. My parents aren't responsible for my bad decisions. The village isn't responsible. The community isn't responsible. Our government, the president, not responsible. Those things may play into my decisions, but I bear the responsibility alone for my sin and you for yours. Their rejection of God was a sign that they really didn't want to accurately address the truth. The truth was they were sinners against a holy God. And instead of addressing that and saying, that's the problem here, they continued to live in their deception and they got rid of God. Think about this. God actually cared enough about the Philistines to break into their world. He cared enough about the Philistines to break into their worldview and say, what you've been believing is wrong. Here is the truth. Take the truth. But it was easier for them to stick to the lie, to believe the deception, than it was to accept the truth. The great theologian Matthew Henry says, carnal hearts, when they smart under the judgments of God, would rather, if it were possible, put him far from them then enter into covenant and communion with him and make him their friend. 
that God can be our friend when we come into communion and covenant relationship with him. And the Apostle Paul says it this way, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what, he has, through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory, the weight of God, of the incorruptible God, for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. It always makes me laugh when somebody will say, oh, Christians just have a crutch or believing in God is, is just because they're weak or it's, it's, it's irrational, it doesn't make any sense. I look at the world and I see evidence all over and I say, with all that evidence, how can you not believe? Seriously, how can you not believe what you see is not from God? You see, I don't believe in God in spite of the evidence. I believe in God because of the evidence. And that belief drives me to say, God, what do you want from me? And he says, I want you to confess your sin, that I may forgive you and that you and I may be friends and be communing together and have that beautiful relationship. You see, our culture has responded to God the same way that the Philistines did. Let's get rid of them. They take them out of schools, get them out of the public arena, get them out of the Pledge of Allegiance, get them out of Christian talk, get Christians out, don't give them any voice. But God's glory will not be shut down. He will glorify himself. For the Philistines, that glory meant heaviness and trouble because they refused to turn to him. His glory was devastating to them. I know that here today there are individuals who have done that with God, who have said, get rid of them. I don't want them. It's too much. I can't bear it. And we're all the product of our culture. And you may be here today and been trying to silence God. God has been giving you evidence month after month, year after year, evidence of his love and his power, but but you keep silencing him. He's calling you, but you keep censoring him. But if you don't turn, if you don't turn to him, what are you left with? You're left with a glued up monument to your own wisdom or your own strength. What good is that gonna do you? It's not done you any good yet. So I want to encourage you, if you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you've not devoted your life to God, I want you to forget what the anti-God culture is screaming at you. They don't love you. They don't care about you. They have no concern about your eternity. Stop listening to them. Stop listening to the noise and think for yourself for a minute. Look at the evidence. 
God is reaching out to you. Even this morning, he is reaching out to you in love and in power. He loves you. He cares for your soul. He does care about your eternity. Evidence upon evidence has come to you about his existence. He has gone to the greatest length he could to bring you into a relationship with him when he sent his son, Jesus, on the cross to die, to take the punishment your sins deserved. He took it on your behalf so that you could be his friend. Can you imagine that? People, Jesus on the cross, that's the new mercy seat. That's where we find forgiveness. That's where we become the children of God. When the hands of God, that heavy hand of God was nailed to the cross for you and for me. Now you can respond like the Philistines, but that's not going to go well for you. Or you can respond in humility and receive this offer of love and forgiveness and friendship with God. I'm not asking if you believe that God really matters to you. I'm asking if you believe that you really matter to God and you mattered enough for him to send his son to die on the cross for you. Our service is gonna to come to a close in just a few minutes. And at that time, we'll have, we'll have some of our leaders here ready to pray. If you've not received this forgiveness at the mercy seat of Christ, do it today. I mean, look at what happened to the Philistines. Your only hope is to turn to God. Acknowledge the truth Acknowledge the evidence that is before you and stop playing around and come to God. And for those of us who believe, there's a special message here for us as well. We must take a look at what the Israelites, what the Israelites, what this meant to them. You see, they were supposed to know that God was not the God of just a particular city, but that he was the God of the universe, they were supposed to know that God could not be contained in one area, one location, but that he was transcendent. They were supposed to know that he could not be measured in time or space. They were supposed to know that, that God would come to them in the ark or in the temple, but that those things didn't actually bind him. He wasn't bound by those things. It was just where they met they were supposed to know that God would not share his glory, that he was sovereign and that he would reach out to humans and not the reverse, that he could not be tempted or manipulated or tricked into acting. He owed no obligation to humankind. Had they remembered that, they would not have ever carried the ark of God into battle because it wasn't a good luck charm. But what happened here with the Philistines capturing the ark was a national crisis. In fact, it was the greatest national crisis that would happen in their existence so far. And the worst thing that would happen for another 500 years, when 500 years later, the Babylonians would be sent by God to discipline the Israelites and take them out of their land and into captivity. So the Israelites are looking at this crisis and saying, wow, God lost against Dagon. Is God really not strong enough to save us? Was he really overthrown by a lesser God? 
Does he really still love us? Will we really still be his people? Through this passage, we've seen the movement of the ark. But the movement of the ark was not because people were moving it. It's because God was moving, moving himself. He moved himself into the land of the Philistines so that they would know about him. And he will move himself back into the land of Israel. He needed no help. He did it all himself. He proved that he was sovereign and that he was not to be treated lightly. He is to be treated with weight, with honor, with glory, with, with heaviness. He is the God of glory to be honored. He was not the God of human design. He's the God who designs humans. So Christian, it's easy to fret when we look around our world and we see the glory of God being defaced. Is God really on his throne? Yes, he is. He can take care of himself. He doesn't need us to protect him, right? We can't do it anyway. We can always rest on the fact that he is sovereign and will not trade his glory despite what it may look like to us in our current time that we live. He is victorious over all the forces of government, over all the forces of evil, over all the forces of mankind. He is victorious. He will have his way. Now, I can't help but see the similarities between us and the Israelites. How easy it is for us to keep God in that box. We treat him like he's there for us rather than we're there for him. And you know, isn't that the, the main message of many churches today? Just, just follow God and it's all gonna go well with you. You're gonna have the victory. You'll get the job. You'll get the promotion. You'll get the boyfriend. God cannot be manipulated or pressed into service when we are threatened by what's around us. See, God is really not interested, as interested in your happiness as he is interested in your salvation and sanctification. Or to say it this way, if you want two H's, he's less interested in your happiness than he is in your holiness. That's what God wants. So do you have weighty belief or anemic belief in this God. You see, if we have anemic belief, we treat him like he's a waiter. Think about this. You know, men, uh, what's the holiday coming up? Uh, Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is coming up two days from now. When you're out at a restaurant with your wife, do you like that waiter hanging with you, sitting at the table with you? You want him there? No, 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 no. We just call him over when we need something. Uh, could, I have, could I have another appetizer? How about more water? Send the bill to that table. You see, we treat God like a waiter, though, don't we? We call him when we need him. Call him when we need him. The waiter is not a part of my life. He's just there to serve me. Oh, how easy it is to treat God in this unweighty way. God gave his all, but we give him a token. A token on Sunday morning, you know, token, token time, Token in the offering box. A token Bible reading, maybe a few days this week. But God, don't press into my relationships. I, I, God, don't talk to me about my, my wallet. God, don't talk to me about what I do on my taxes. The holiness of God, the glory of God presses in 
on us, just like that ice pressed in on the ship and crushed it. The holiness of God presses in on our lives and can crush us unless we submit to it and say, God, every area of my life is yours. It's when I resist God that the pressure hurts. But when I submit to him, when I say, Lord, every corner, every dark closet, every little space in my soul belongs to you and you only. That's when God is glorified the most in my life and in yours. The musicians are gonna come and sing and as, as they come and lead us in singing a final song, a couple of verses of a final song here, again, we have people down front here not only for unbelievers to come and say, yeah, I want that God, but for, for believers to come and say, yeah, I need to submit more. There's another area of my life that the Lord exposed to me this morning. I wanna give it to him, put it under his lordship. Let him be the God of glory over my life.